What predicts the path of a human life? The big stuff, family, education, community, or the little stuff, random moments? He said, what do you think about robbing a bank? My response was, yes, this is a great idea. Looking for patterns, this week on Invisibilia from NPR. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives. A powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Helen Fisher. Listen to our produced show with her wherever you find your podcasts and, as always, at onbeing.org. Oh, well, over and over and over and over yeah. because of the clock. I mean, that's the biggest, my, always my biggest problem. It's the clock. It's yeah. always my biggest problem. Yeah. yeah. It's understandable. Yeah. yeah. And in this case, it's like really big, blaring there, kind of yeah. haunting you. <clears throat> I, I don't even look at it until the end and I saw all those zeros. <laughs> I said, oh, no. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, you handled it very well. You're like, Just a couple more minutes, I'll be done. Yeah. No, it was great. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. You know, I had to do a, one of these TED All-Star talks, and it was, I had five minutes. Oh, wow. It took me 18 hours to write a five-minute five speech. Minutes, right, to get it down to five minutes. Yeah. Wow. Well, to find out, to, first of all, to think about what is the most yeah. important things, yeah. have a little bit of humor in there, yeah. Uh, yeah. and do it in five minutes. It was a, such a nightmare. Yeah. But this was a nightmare, too. This one yeah. was a nightmare. It took yeah. me, I wrote, I wrote that thing for three days. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, whatever. Mm-hmm. It's over. Yeah. Almost, almost over. <laughs> well, it's over. over. Yeah, you're going to be... <laughs> I suspect you'll be giving that talk again, or versions uh, of it. <clears throat> Probably parts of it, but, but yeah. because it was about rebellion. Yeah, so, and, you, and, so you shifted you know, the lens of it. So I was choosing... I was trying yeah. to choose, And generally, I really... I mean, for example, I mean, there were some real wrong things in there. I, I, I dropped a bomb right in the beginning, but nobody knew it was a bomb. And I didn't explain it when I talked about evo- uh, mon- monogamy and adultery going hand in hand. Yeah, yeah. And then I proceeded to not tell anything about why I know this, mm-hmm. what it is, yeah, it's true. How, where it evolved, yeah. where we're going with it, anything. Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, you know, as a, as a, as a writer, yeah. it's, 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 it, was, it was... But I wanted to tell that beginning story. But in terms, no of, but in terms of the experience of the listener so much happened in the next half hour after that yeah. that nobody was saying oh gee that what that happened didn't, there yeah I mean it was, I mean, right. it was there as in it, it was kind of in the mix of what you got out of it but, right right yeah um, but it, it was you know I mean it, you know you'd have to design these things and it was but I, I, I worked and worked and worked and worked and worked on it yeah. anyway bottom yeah. line yeah. These things take time. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well I want to have um, you know I spent a lot of I've read your books and um and uh, and also read interviews other people have done of you. So you know, really dug around to try to get as three dimensional view as I could. And um, I think I want to ask you some questions, or like, t- um, kind of uh, push, you know, take the the conversation in some directions that I haven't seen other people go with you. And you Wonderful. may want to go there or not. We'll see. I don't have any. Okay. Any, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm. They're probably. Who's, who's, well, I'll do my best. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Can we stop and start, or does this? Yeah, totally. Over? No, this is completely <coughs> a completely real conversation, and if if you know, it doesn't have to be linear. You know, we can, we have to edit it down afterwards. Anyway. You do edit it down. And, but okay. we edit it. I mean, we can. You don't have to worry about some people 
who've been interviewed a lot and edited, even try to help you, but don't help us. Just You can start and stop and start over, and okay. it'll be our job. Too. And, uh, you know, I get excited. I start to try to lean forward a bit, uh, so, I'm, I, so well, I should just stay here no matter what. Uh, no, I want you to be able to move. Yeah. Uh, so we can move the mic if you... Um, yeah, that, yeah, I guess... Pretend you're excited. Oh well, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I mean, I'd be, I'd, 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 yeah. I'd be all over the place. Yeah. So I'll just do my best to just. Okay. The mics are pretty good and sensitive, and <coughs> yeah, you shouldn't need to, to worry about it. If if you go way off mic somehow, Chris will tell you. Right. Okay. Well, and, I'll keep my eye on. Yeah, and this is also not like. I won't do anything. The other thing okay. is that this chair is so steep I that know. I'm very comfortable. My back is very comfortable yeah. right where it is. So yeah. I'll do my very best to yeah. not move yeah. around. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for your interest. Well, well, um, I think this whole subject of love and um, and the complication of it and how it's so. Um, you know, how it's everywhere in our lives and in our culture, but culture. we don't have much of a handle on it. Right. It has been something that we've been talking about, about wanting to kind of try to get into from in some different from some different directions. And so I got, you know, really excited about your work. And um and and you know, I do have a question I, I did not ask it yesterday on stage because that was such a focused uh discussion, but I always ask whoever I'm speaking with, um if there was a religious or spiritual background to their childhood, like however you might define that, mm-hmm. none, none. I really? had no religious education at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up in an entirely lily white Christian community in Connecticut, and when it came time for um, uh, Sunday school, my father said to me and to my twin sister, um, "I'd be happy to take you to the church." Uh, on my way to play tennis, but you're going to have to find your own ride home. Okay. And so I went once mm-hmm. and got a ride home with Margot Eberman's family, which we lived nearby, and that was it. Mm-hmm. The rest of my Sundays were spent playing with my twin sister, and I never went again. Mm-hmm. I, um, I, I mean, I'm interested in religion. I'm an anthropologist. Yeah. And um, I, uh, uh, I'm actually going to a church right now up in Harlem, uh, and I, I originally went for the gospel music, but this particular uh, preacher actually says something. I like to—I mean, I—I'd like to have an experience in which I come home thinking about something. This is one of the reasons that I love the theater, particularly mm-hmm. people like Ibsen, because you come—you come away from it with ideas, ideas about yourself, ideas about the world. And if Christianity or any of the other religions, you know, provided those interesting ideas or insights into self, then um, I, I'm not opposed to it. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I happen to be an atheist, mm-hmm. uh, and I always have been. Um, uh, I mean, I don't know if you've ever looked at the uh, Hubble telescope site, uh, the Hubble site on, on, uh, on the Internet. Yes. But when you take a look at what's out there, it's, it, it's so staggering. Reality is so staggering that I don't need to construct any other hmm. meanings to it. Hmm. The real meanings of life for me are in reality, I guess. Yeah. I don't um, want to insult anybody. And No, no, I don't think that is insulting. I think yeah. it's your 
Um, in fact, my twin sister lives in France, and her French friends are astonished that we never had any religious education as children. And in fact, it was never discussed in my house. It wasn't one of those things that I was discussed. I think that is kind of unusual. Yeah, I mean, it is. Growing up in America. Yeah, I grew up a in a glass house um, uh, built by Elliot Noyes right next to uh, Philip Johnson's glass house. And perhaps my parents were iconoclasts of some variety. I don't have any idea. So I never talked about it with them. Yeah. But uh, I never saw my father in a church once. Hmm. And when it came to be um, time to be confirmed into the uh, uh, Christian church, um, I remember everybody else in my town went, and I did not. And so my mother uh, took me to the congregational church, which we were apparently a part of. (laughs) And um, I just remember saying to him, well, you know, you always talk about Jesus Christ, but you never talk about God. And that was a much more interesting concept to me Mm. than a messenger. And uh, I actually think all of the world's religions have some wonderful parts to them. I mean, the Christians have the art. There's no Caravaggio, Tintoretto in any other religion. Uh, They've got the art and wonderful ritual. I think the Jews have beautiful music, wonderful music. And I think they have wonderful ideas. Uh, Right, a wonderful intellectual tradition. Yes, and in fact, I have some Jewish girlfriend, and I'm just begging her to allow me to come in. I've gone to my second Rosh Hashanah now. And I mean, you know, this idea of of thinking about your sins and and apologizing to people is wonderful. And I think in the Islamic um, Muslim, I love the idea of Ramadan. The idea of not eating or drinking anything all day long for a month must bring these people together so much mm-hmm. after sunset. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's something about going through a hardship or rituals together is something that I think is, is a very valuable idea. And I think that's definitely the anthropologist in you. Yeah, who, and I think the Buddhists yeah. have the, you know, I was in um, Tibet uh, a couple years ago, and uh, they've got an awful lot of fish in those streams. And it's because nobody wants to kill a fish. Yeah. And so if they're going to kill something, they want to kill something big so a lot of people can eat, as opposed to a little thing. So you're taking one soul for only one meal, as opposed to if you kill a yak or a you know, a large animal, um, you can feed a lot of people for several days yeah. and only kill one soul. So this, there's wonderful things about all the religions. And I certainly am hoping that, you know, I lived with the Navajo for a, a while, many years ago. And, of course, their, their real belief in the earth. Oh, you lived with the Navajo community somewhere? I lived, um, in, it was 1968, and yeah. um, I was sent by the Museum of Natural History in New York mm-hmm. um, to study a matrilineal society. And they're matrilineal. They, they, um, they uh, uh, trace their descent through mother as opposed to father. And so I, I was sent out as a young girl. And, um, you know, they, their main god is a woman, mm. and, um, and they have a great uh, respect for the earth. And so if, one, if I could create a religion, I would pick, I, I would pick some from all of them mm. and put them together mm. into a new one. Mm. It's maybe time for that, too. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's one of those. You, you, you talk a lot in your work about how we are kind of reversing 10,000 years of yes. habit. And I think, I mean, we're doing that in many spheres, and I think religion is not going to look the same in the next century as it That's a wonderful way. To, I had not century. thought about that. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. How do you think it will look? I don't, I mean, I don't know, but, um, you know, the thing about, about religious identity is, I mean, your story is pretty unusual for a couple of generations ago, but it's not very unusual for kids being raised now. Right. And I think religious religious <coughs> identity, and I mean, this plays into your work where people pe- people married 
people often of the same religious and ethnic group, right? But um, th- that identity that was conferred upon us, almost like hair color and you know the neighborhood we lived in. It wasn't right. just the religion we belonged to, but maybe the church or the synagogue that our parents and grandparents had gone to. But that's all falling away, right? So yeah. people are creating their spiritual lives. Yes, isn't that interesting? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and That's and new um, in human history. You know, most of human history has been shamanism, mm-hmm. and in shamanism, of course, there is a great uh, belief that in animism. You know, the fact that rocks and trees and plants and the sunset and everything has meaning, and <clears throat> maybe with the whole movement towards uh, global warming. We're yeah. seeing a new emphasis yeah. on. We start to pay on, attention to that again. Uh, yeah, and yeah. maybe that will evolve into uh, a, a, an old, yeah. but yet new, a return yeah. to um, to a respect for all living things. Yeah. You know, one of the things you know, I've written these books, and the fav- my favorite chapter in all of the books is a chapter about how animals love. Really? That's your yeah, favorite? Yeah, it's, it's my favorite chapter. First of all, it's very easy to tell a story because there's wonderful stories about animals. Yeah. But, um, you know, this brain circuitry for romantic love evolved, and it evolved from something. <laughs> right. And this basic brain system is very similar in all of the mammals and even some of the birds. And you can, you can see animals act as if they're in love. Now, we use the word in love, but if you wanted to use the word animal attraction— or animal magnetism, right? Which you know. we used to talk about ourselves. Yeah, yeah. and you you can see yeah. um, a fox in the beginning of the mating season just lock his eyes on a particular female mm-hmm. and then doggedly follow her mm-hmm. and not eat and not sleep and snuggle up next to her and lick her constantly and bring her food even when he's really hungry and just be what looks like obsessed with her. And it was wonderful for me to tell these stories about. Oh, I, one of my favorite stories is a is a is about a it's a black rhino, and um, you know he's he's displaying in front of a female. He's got this tiny little tail, this wingy whizzly whizzing around, and he's and he's pu- pulling up the brush and he's getting up on his hind legs and strutting. And then I remember the uh, the woman who wrote about him saying he looked for all the world as if he were dancing. <laughs> and uh, you know, and, and so you see the the continuity between man and beast, right. and you see you, animals have have more life for me, you know. Uh, and I'm trying to get the world to understand that you know these basic brain systems come from somewhere, mm-hmm. and that other animals have these intense feelings. What I like about that too, the way you're talking about it, is I think when we use phrases like. What did you say? Animal attraction. When we use animal, animal attraction. Magnetism. It's like something um, primitive and kind of base. Yeah. But you're talking about something that's joyful and playful. Yeah. As well as well as kind of hardwired and yeah, innate. absolutely. Um, so how do you? Where do you trace really the? I'm just curious. You know, can you trace the earliest origins of this of love and romance and this drive in us as something that you had this special curiosity about that you started to pursue? You know, people have always asked me why I study love. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is in hindsight. Um, I'm an identical twin, and 
long before I knew that there was a nature-nurture controversy, I was very busy trying to measure how much of my own behavior was biological and how much of it was cultural. Mm -hmm. Because you can't be an identical twin without having everybody ask you, do you have the same friends? Do you have the same cavities in your teeth? Do you like the same food? Do you have uh, extrasensory perception? And so you're very, I was very busy, even as a small child, trying to figure out what part of me came out of my biology and what I had already learned. Uh, from my from my environment, so when in, I got to graduate school, um, and as a as a child, I was very interested in people. I as I, I, I lived in this glass house, yeah, right. <laughs> and my neighbors lived in a glass house. And by the time I was six and seven, I would um, uh, sneak into the woods and sit on an old stone wall and watch them eat dinner. Mm. I just would I would just uh, glued to the train when we took the train from Grand Central Station out to Connecticut. Um, after a visit in, to New York, I would be glued to the window looking into the homes of, of people's, hmm. you know, when we would stop at 125th Street. So I've always been terribly interested in people, mm-hmm. and I've always been interested in why we're all alike as opposed to why we're all different. Mm-hmm. So when it came time for my PhD dissertation, what I was most interested in, I figured that if there was any part of us at all that we had all in common, it would be our reproductive strategies. It would be our sex lives, our romantic lives, and our and our reproductive lives, because that's the way you pass your DNA on. Right, that's tomorrow. how we continue to survive exactly. collectively. So I would figure out. So I so my 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 base idea concept was, well, languages are going to be different. Uh, custom food customs are going to be different. Uh, courtship customs are probably going to be different. But your basic feelings of romance and and partnership may all be the same. So it was rather of an intellectual... I got there through an intellectual path rather than having a bad love affair. I didn't have a bad love affair that drove me that direction, which is what I think a lot of people would assume. Uh So, you know, when I was reading about your research and what you're learning, um, I... I, I, I thought I began to think of that as something I thought about over the years. You know, as somebody who has been married and divorced and um has thought a lot about, you know and but also I don't know, I I'm, you and I can talk openly here and we can edit it out. This probably will not be there. But you know, I ha- I had a very lively, wonderful, rich life as a single person when I was younger and then got married and, and I don't regret get, getting married and and um although um, and I think that the person I married is absolutely the, you know, I can't imagine having anybody else as father of my children. Um, and that is his main role in my life now. Right. And that's still a role in my life. But, um, boy, when I look back at, uh, you know, what an intelligent person I was and how many rich and interesting relationships I had before I met him and the reasons I married him, which make no <laughs> sense, <laughs> you know, and one thinks about these things also right. as one. And then you see, I mean, I would say... Timing uh, plays a role. Timing, right, right, exactly. You know. But I would say, you know, I think so many of us um, who are single, but not just single people, they kind of look around the world today at the matter of love. And uh, it, it feels like there's just a lot of disarray. Now, whether there's more disarray than there ever has been, who knows? You know, maybe we know all the stories too much. I mean, obviously, I think it is a time marriage and divorce has been in flux. I was looking back. There was this passage in, um, and 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 what's, one of the things that was interesting to me about your science is, you know, you do describe what happens in the brain as it has hallmarks of 
and temporary insanity, right? I mean, right. it's obsessiveness. I mean, I think right. you've said that is the, sure. the chief hallmark of obsessive. I mean, and I just, I pulled out this this passage from a novel, and I know you also like to work with literature and poetry. Julian Fellows, who created um, Downton Abbey. But he, he wrote this novel, and I, th- I just loved this passage when I found it. He said, lust, lust, that state commonly known as being in love, is a kind of madness. It is a distortion of reality so remarkable that it should, by rights, enable most of us to understand the other forms of <clears throat> enable most of us to understand the other forms of lunacy with the sympathy of fellow sufferers. <laughs> and yet, as we all know, it is a madness that, however ferocious, seldom, if ever, lasts. But paradoxically, mad and suffering as one is in the heat of the flame, few of us are glad as we feel that passion slip away. You know, he goes on. What a beautiful, it's, what a beautiful. It goes beautiful. on, you know, is no, while most people have been at their unhappiest when in love, it is nevertheless the state the human being yearns for above all. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I think it was Samuel Johnson. You know, he, he, he described remarriage as the, uh, as the triumph of hope over experience. Yes, yes. <laughs> we do it over and over and over right. again. I mean, it is so powerful, and just, and it is such a distortion of reality, you know. In fact, parts of the brain um, uh, associated with decision making begin to shut down yeah. when you're in love. Okay, like, literally, then that's, that makes yeah, so much sense. Yeah, the blood rolls out instead of yeah. rolling in, and so they begin to begins to shut down. And of course, I mean, for obvious reasons. I mean, this brain system of romantic love, and I do. Th- think it's different from lust. I do think they're very different brain yeah. systems. Right. Um, but uh, a romantic love uh, evolved for that reason, to enable you to overlook everything in order to be with this human being. And of course, that's what you really need to do to start that mating process. Mm-hmm. Uh, because bottom line is, you know, if you have four children and I have no children, you live on and I die out. You know, the game of love matters. It matters big time. It, you know, uh, um, it, it enables you to send your DNA on into tomorrow. And so we've evolved a brain system. Mm-hmm. And attachment's a very strong brain system, too. But it's not as the same quite insanity. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe a different form of insanity. But, uh, um, you know, it evolved to be so strong that some people will leave their community. They'll leave their town, they'll leave their family, they'll go to a different country, they'll learn a new language, they'll, yeah. you know, they will start all over with their lives to, to, to do this thing. And then you wake up a few years later, <laughs> you know, and, um, you know, I, in my books I've had to wonder, people wonder why love, why that early state of intense romantic passion begins to die. Mm-hmm. And um, bottom line is, um, it takes a lot of metabolic energy you don't eat, you don't sleep, you don't think about anything else, you focus on this person constantly, you change your hair, you change your life, you change your clothes, you change your friends, you, you know, you, you do a million different things yeah. in order to win and, and be part of this relationship. And you can't tolerate that forever. Not only will you run out of energy, but you can't really have a child sitting there in the, at, at dinner and the two of you racing around the dinner table after each other. Right. Well, <laughs> right. So, but so that's what I think, you know, and you have um, described all of this and what's happening in the brain in terms of this brew of neurotransmitters yeah. and hormones. Brew is a wonderful word. So interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, right, but you describe it as, you know, all these lines get blurred, but but there are these, but right, but those qualities that make for that that uh, you know that coming together with that other person in this intense way and deciding to 
rearrange the rest of your life to be with them, as you say, in order. There's these, there are these drives in us. It's a drive to have that, and and that evolu- in evolutionary terms, it had everything to do with having those children. Um, but then it's a whole different set of qualities that we need to have, that we need to be manifesting personally and also in that relationship in order to actually be good parents, right? That's exactly, and that's one of the reasons that I'll, I say to people, you know, don't marry him or her until some of that intensity is worn off. Really? So that you, you really know more about who, you, who you're going to have a partnership uh-huh. with. It's very interesting because I now study personality and I read an article not long ago about the fact that you really actually don't get to know somebody very well uh, until about 18 months are over. Mm-hmm. And of course, if it's in a good relationship, you keep learning things about them 30 years later. I yeah. mean, when their parents die, if a child dies, if you suddenly have to move or you lose all your money or you make a lot of money, you're, you're going to learn a whole lot of new things about somebody. I think that's one of the problems with American marriage. We somehow think that, you know, the minute you marry, you sort of lock the door and stay in, you know, in place. Whereas relationships right. evolve, yeah. and a good one is constantly evolving. Yeah. And was it Margaret Mead who said everyone should have three marriages, yes. even if it's to the same person? That, oh, how wonderful! Yeah, like that everyone should have three marriages, and even if it's the same person, that that the marriage has to become something new at yeah. a different stage in life. Oh, that's wonderful! I know that she said that the first one is for sex, the second one is for children, and the third one is for companionship. Yeah, and. Um, uh, but I mean, but that you know. So what's so interesting again about the way you're able to break this down is um, this first part of it, this falling in love part of it, this passion, this madness, which then leads to this commitment. Um, it's just instinctive. It, it, it's not only built into us; it almost takes takes us over. No question about it. It takes over right. the brain. It takes over the brain. It, you know. But then yeah. this other part about the part about. Raising children, the part about, you know, crafting a long-term love, right. um, moving into those next two marriages, if you want to use that analogy, we're so unprepared for. Well, you know, this is why, you know, when you said we were in a time of disorganization, yeah, and we are. I mean, we are shedding 10,000 years of our uh, farming background and all of the concepts that arose with that. I mean, the fact that a woman's place is in the home, women don't have a head for business, uh, men should be the head of the family, um, uh, men should be the sole family provider, uh, till death does part, all of that is vanishing. In, in Before our very eyes, 10,000 years of these, this, these concepts. And so we were at this time of disorganization where nobody knows really how to how to go forward. Yeah. And so, it, but it gives us great opportunities to build the kinds of partnerships that we really want. And one of the beautiful things about, you know, what you just said is that, okay, well, we're, we don't really know how to parent and we, uh, and we don't really know much about this person. And so what we're doing now is getting into relationships very slowly. Right. And that's the beauty of this. And these that's a one shift night, that you're seeing now. Yeah. These one-night stands, the friends with benefits, yeah. the living together before you're getting married. Yeah. More and more people are having children before they marry. Yeah. And so they are beginning to, I mean, not a, they're beginning to really understand a human being mm-hmm. before they, they sink the boat. You know, into and and I I think it's important to dwell on that because what you are saying is that um, 
you know, especially generationally, you can, and I, you know, I have children who are 16 and 20, right? And you can say... Boys, girls? Uh, or... Boy, 16-year-old boy, 20-year-old girl. Mm-hmm. Actually, she just turned 21. Um, and you can worry, but parents can worry about, the, as you say, the casual sex, the friends with benefits, which feels just really suspect and, you know, irresponsible right. and scary. Right. Um, but you're saying that that's not necessarily about them being flaky or casual, but it's a manifestation of being cautious. And Not only being yeah, being cautious, really learning something about this person. Now, I mean, most people know all about contraception, so that worry is, no, is no, should be no longer with yeah. us. Yeah. And uh, most people know about disease, and so that yeah. they should be able to to monitor that. Mm-hmm. And um, and so some of the, 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 the riskiest parts of living with somebody are gone. And, of course, um, you know, parents are now accepting their children living with somebody, so mm-hmm. they don't even have the social stigma of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, their social circles are accepting it. So a lot of people, you know, almost intuitively reason, I've got no reason to not do this, and i got huge reasons to really get to know this person. Well, and especially when so many... People now are growing up in homes where there was where marriages did, have failed. Exactly, and or, they've, they've seen it well, around they, them. Not just them, but all right. their friend groups. I mean, if my I think of my kids, and then there's this interesting thing that's happening now with the fluidity of family of, you know, all the forms of family. I right. mean, there is no model, right? right? You know, we're seeing a new form called, you know, that I've, I call the association, mm-hmm. and I'm really excited excited about it uh, uh, because um, it's groups of friends. And I, I live in New York. My both parents are, are deceased. Uh, my older sister lives in Europe. My brother's dead. And my older my twin sister lives in Europe. So mm-hmm. I really, Thanksgiving is a challenge for me. Mm-hmm. And I'm between men, so that's a real challenge. And, um, and so I have a group of friends who I see. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I see them regularly. And they're the ones that will come to the hospital if I'm sick. Uh, they're the ones that I will call to say that I made a speech that people liked, um, you know, and, and it's an association of friends yeah. um, that is my real family. And it's interesting how a lot of young people know, have their association, they're much closer to their association than they are to their own family. So Christmas and holidays become very stressful for them mm-hmm. because they go home to families that they really don't know very well and who don't really know them. They don't know what to give their aunt uh, for Christmas or Hanukkah or whatever, um, because they don't know these people the way they know uh, the people they hang around with in New York City. So we're building new forms of family. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if you've also paid any attention to something I'm aware of as a parent of teenage children, and I hear a lot of people talking about, is that um, even this romance piece seems to happen collectively in groups. You know, dating is not what it used to be. You don't invite the girl to go to a movie and dinner, right. you go out with a group of friends, and then somehow people are coupled, but it's a very different pattern. And even that, I think, is cautious. Yeah. Not, I mean, first of all, they don't have a lot of money, and dinner mm-hmm. these days costs a lot. Mm-hmm. And um, once you start having dinner with somebody, you are expressing a genuine interest. Yeah. But if you casually go out with a group, and you go all dancing, and then you all end up having breakfast at 2 a.m. in some place, and you can, get to, you can get to know somebody, it's, yeah. it, it's the expanding pre-commitment stage. Uh-huh. And, um, and there is, I think, a Darwinian wisdom um, to that. It's interesting. I was talking to somebody recently who said that actually the dinner date is coming back. Yeah. 
But um, I haven't seen the signs of that. <laughs> no. Even among older people. I mean, you know, I'm older, and um, I'm I'm forming new friendships in in a group, and that's exactly what's happening to me. There's a couple men in that group that I could be interested in, but mm-hmm. nobody's expressed anything. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> and just you don't goes know the what group. the rules of the game are because it's a new game, right? It, it's a new game. Yes. Everybody has to make up their own rules, yes. which is both extremely difficult, but has great opportunity. Yeah. And I think we're seeing a whole lot of new. I mean, for example, with the uh, with technology. I mean. That is changing courtship. It's not changing love. I mean, once you, whether you meet them on Tinder or Facebook or or Match.com or your girlfriend sets you up, mm-hmm. when you meet that person in the bar or at the coffee house, your ancient human brain clicks into action and you court the way we've done it for millions of years. But bottom line is that courtship, you know, how you meet somebody, what the etiquette is. Mm-hmm. We're, gonna, we're now building what Margaret Mead called taboos. Instead of rules, taboos. One of the new taboos is that um, 60% of people um, uh, on a date find it extremely rude if uh, their partner, dating, dating partner, uh, pulls out um, their, and, their and phone, does a, yeah, and does a text message huh. or, or uses their phone in any way. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I do this annual study with Match.com called mm-hmm. Singles in America, mm-hmm. and we don't poll the Match population; we poll the American population. Mm-hmm. It's based on the U.S. Census, and um, and we're very interested in how technology is changing things. So, we at Match, we really watch, you know. Uh, what is Tinder doing? And, uh, you know, what is Instagram doing? And and how do you use these? And how often do you uh, research a date? And 45% of women research a date before they go out. Uh, about 33% of men do, far fewer men. Mm-hmm. We don't know why. Really? But, but my, my hypothesis is that men are much more afraid of being accused of stalking. And so they're not going to do that. But what amazes me as an anthropologist is why doesn't 100% of both men and women research the date? Yeah. Because it's natural. I mean, for millions of years, we lived in these little hunting and gathering groups, and they would arrive at a waterhole, and some girl would see some cute boy at the other side of the waterhole, and she didn't know him. She'd ask someone about it. Her mother knew his aunt. Yeah. Her father knew his brother. Yeah. He knew, she knew what he was going to be when he grew up. Um, she probably knew what his religion was. Uh, she probably even knew whether, whether he was a good shot or whether he had a good sense of humor. She, people for millions of years went into relationships, even on the first date, knowing a good deal about a human being. Okay. And we somehow think that it's natural to walk into a bar and know nothing about somebody <laughs> and unnatural to go onto a dating site, where in fact it really is the reverse. Hmm. That's making me think of something I've been hearing about recently that... Um, that colleges, when they place roommates, uh-huh. are not have stopped. Many of them have stopped giving kids the name of their roommate before they arrive on campus. Oh, that's fascinating! Because people were researching to death who their roommate was going to be and deciding they didn't want to live with this person, and not giving them a chance. And so they had all this bureaucracy around shift changing the roommate pool. That's and, very which, cool. Which that's makes, very interesting. Which makes you think about you know the old fashioned value of encountering another human being in the flesh right. first. Right. And, you know, the colleges know that, that once the kids have met and do know their name, they will then go Google them. Right. But um, it's kind of, it's interesting for you to point out that 
even before there was an internet and you could do a search, there were ways to do a search. Oh, big time. Yeah. And 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 and, and now we're sort of on our own. In the past, mm-hmm. our parents. Right. We don't you have know, those extended We don't have circles any of, of those extended. You know, and 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 we are missing something. You know, I, the the loss of local community. Everybody's yeah. very upset about divorce. Divorce has been around for a good four million years. Serial pair bonding is probably basic to the human animal. Series mm-hmm. of partnerships, mm-hmm. but. Um, what is really unusual for me is the loss of local community. Mm-hmm. We have extended communities. We have our internet friends. We've got our work friends. We've got our people who we exercise with. We've got people who we go to a poetry conference with, whatever it is. But um, we don't have local community. Well, and the other thing I've thought about some over the years is how marriages are such lonely. You know, the nuclear family right. is very unnatural in human history for these same reasons, right? That marriages and families would have been embedded in networks of other marriages and other families and elders and cross-generational. So well said. So well said. And I think it's, it's a, it's, it, it is this, it's like this death blow to marriage as an institution almost to t- have it be this isolated Right. Where, the, you know, you have two people who right. are left to take everything out on themselves. You know, people are so upset about this, the, a single mother or a single uh, father. Yeah. I'm upset, like you are, about the, the two of them. Yeah. They're all by themselves. Yes. And um, it's so interesting. You know, I have a housekeeper who comes every two weeks to move the dust around. And I just adore this woman. And she's from Ecuador. And I asked her how many, you know, people she has for Thanksgiving. She has 50 people for Thanksgiving. <laughs> I couldn't scare up 10 <laughs> relatives. I couldn't do it. Yeah. And so, you know, there certainly are whole worlds that perhaps you and certainly me mm-hmm. are, are not living in. Mm-hmm. But I think our way is the future that, you know, that there could be more and that more choose, isolated like, people. That we choose chosen families also, that this association as the right. antidote that we're... Exactly. Uh-huh. Uh, to, to rebuild local community. Yes. But, uh, you know, even, yeah... But uh, there's something beautiful about And that's, of course, the way we live for millions of years. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, 100,000 years ago, if you divorced, okay, so he walked out of the little camp with his bow and arrow, <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> but you still had your mother, your aunts, your uncles, your cousins, yeah. a whole pile of people to support your child yeah, right. with you. right. Right. You had a whole local community, and right. that's what's really disappearing. And right. this I think whole we will idea see that a single be- mother is a new invention. Um, there were single mothers um, in hunting and gathering societies, but they were embedded. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And that's the difference. Yeah. And that's that. That is a real mm-hmm. shame. The other thing is that you know, these days you'll see a woman have children. Now, your children are, are four years apart. Yeah. That's the natural human birth spacing is, it? is four years apart. It works really well, yeah. but yeah, it's unusual. Because you have one child who's out of diapers and is off in playgroups mm-hmm. when you're dealing with the baby. And mm-hmm. that's, when you look in hunting and gathering societies, they, they tend to have their children four years apart. Mm-hmm. And so the one child is, has joined a, what they call a multi-age playgroup and can be raised by all kinds of other people in the band that... It's no longer nursing, and you can spend your time on the infant. And, you know, with now the ability to have one child after another, you'll see people who sort of want to get their childbearing over with, and they'll have a a six-month-old and a two-year-old, and only one partner, or maybe no partners. You know, that's the human animal wasn't built... To do that, right? I mean, it is almost—it's physically overwhelming. Apart from anything, emotionally, else. physically, yeah. Yeah. the exhaustion, yeah. Um, and so, it's part of this age of tremendous transition. Uh-huh. Um, 
And, you know, when you... Um, so one of the things I feel comes through in your TED Talks and in this <clears throat> presentation I saw you give yesterday is, um, you know, that this drive in us to mate and settle down is... Uh, is just one of the most fundamental things about who we are. I mean, I mean, logistically that it has has kept our species going, but that that it is so defining. Um, but you know, when you talk about uh, this, these new associations, mm-hmm. um, whatever stage of life we're at, and maybe with or without a romantic partner, um, I mean, of course, I think. I don't know if this is a true statement, but I think most of us, you know, at any given time, if we had a choice, you know, would you have a would you have a romantic sexual relationship, you know, or not, you know, you'd say sure. Right. But it's also possible to have, you know, not to be lonely right. without that. Right. And to have very rich lives that are full of love. Absolutely. Not that particular form of love, right. but but full of love, which right. which doesn't have insanity attached, which can be exactly. kind of a relief. And and uh, and you don't have to be annoyed if they leave their socks uh, right. on the floor one more time. Yeah. I mean, you so know, I mean, do you think this is also? I mean, is this kind of a? It's a kind of a form of progress that we're charting. This new way of choosing our lives of love and association. Uh, I like the. I like. It's a wonderful idea. Um, the only thing I would disagree with is I'm not sure it's new. Uh, maybe the association part is new because it was always family. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think we've always had the opportunity until we began to settle down on the farm for millions of years in these little hunting and gathering groups, women really could make a lot of choices because women worked. Women commuted to work to gather their fruits and vegetables. They came home with often 60 to 80% of the evening meal, often the only meal. Uh, And um, women were just as economically and socially and sexually powerful as men. Mm. And in those kinds of societies where both sexes are powerful and relatively autonomous, you can make the kinds of relationships you want and you can walk out of bad relationships. Mm. And in that kind of, there's, there's some beauty in those that opportunity for choice. And mm-hmm. I think that's what you're getting at. We're, we're moving back into a world where people can make choices. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would guess in hunting and gathering societies, there are older women who say, no, I'm not going for another old man. I'm going <laughs> to hang around with the group and have a good right. time with right. my girlfriends. Right. And, right. and we're back at that. Whereas yeah. on the farm, um, they often married uh, the next day after a partner died because they needed somebody to milk the it's cows. It's so interesting and, to have that that big, broad yeah. lens, that p- perspective. Yeah, sometimes I, I, I look at um, some academics who don't have that lens, and I do think that, that their work is crippled by that lack of, uh. of, of, of the deeper view. Well, I remember even learning that 100 years <clears throat> ago or you know, up until the early late, late 19th, early 20th century, was it something like uh, the average marriage lasted for seven years? Because lifespans right? were so different. We right. could all hang on for seven years. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? right? Almost, no matter the marriage. Right. That's interesting that you know that. Um, I mean, very few people know that. Uh, the lifespan, by the way, has never changed. But the bottom line is so many people died in infancy and childhood and yes. that there was that the average was, was reduced. So if you thing, made it through... Yeah. Um, Infancy, childhood, and adolescence, you were likely, even a million years ago, to live probably into your early 70s. Uh That's what anthropologists who do life history charts Uh um, think. But um, what what, 
what did you say though? It was so interesting. Oh yeah, um, I, 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 in one of my books, I had read and I wrote down that um, in the year um, nineteen hundred, the average marriage I think was twelve years. Twelve, yeah. And the in the year nineteen ninety, the average marriage was also twelve years. But in a hundred years ago, the marriage ended because somebody died. Mm-hmm. And these days, it ends because somebody divorces. Mm-hmm. And in many respects, it's much better to have somebody who divorces in, because at least you may have somebody who helps with the children some of the time. Yeah. I don't know. Although there's all this sense of um, failure. Exactly. And also And, the, and if you didn't like them, they're still because around. Because we don't know how to do it. We don't know how to do that, right? That, I mean, the, there's so much children get... Hurt, hurt, and that's the biggest problem I think. Yeah, today is yeah. is children, uh, is children. It's called the marriage go round, and you know, um, in hunting and gathering societies, women did tend to have two or three husbands during the course of their life. So there's nothing really new about divorce. But as we were saying, it's a lack of local community to support the child. Yeah, yeah. and these right. days, children really there they suffer. are between the two warring parents. Exactly, and no, and no others. Net. Yeah. You know, perhaps a grandmother or father, grandfather. Or, but um, that's our biggest issue, I think, in our mm-hmm. modern world is is the children who... Um, children need support and they need stability. Mm-hmm. They need, More than anything, they need stability. They need somebody who's going to love them unconditionally mm-hmm. and just plain old be around. Mm-hmm. <coughs> and so it's interesting. So between, uh, what did you say, uh, 1900 and 1990... Yeah. Um, there was the fifties. There was the fifties. <laughs> right? I mean, somehow yeah. we all, you know, we lived through some wars. We were all living longer. Um, we kind of enshrined these this idea that we'd figured out how to live. You know, we knew yeah. what society looked like in neighborhoods and families, and um, and there were long marriages. I mean, there still are long marriages. Oh yeah. But there was this. There, there, there came to be what. What I don't. I don't think we really at all understand was a completely new idea that you would settle down and marry and be married forever. Right. Um, uh, that really emerged um, um, ten thousand years ago with settling down on the farm. Settling down on the farm. Yeah. With that, you see the. <coughs> excuse me. With the settling down on the farm, you 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 begin to see very people marrying very young, mm-hmm. and the concept of till death do us part, mm-hmm. because on the farm you need two individuals plus the children plus the grandparents and everything to 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 do to to do the land to mm-hmm. to, to farm the land, and you really can't walk out. Where are you going to go with a metric ton? A hundred tons of of wheat or corn. You can't move. You can't. You can't cut the cow in half. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't take mm-hmm. half the wheat fields and move them out of town. Mm-hmm. You either stick it out, uh, or you leave empty-handed. Mm-hmm. And so, with the beginning of farm living, you see this concept of till death do us part. They really had to stay together. Uh, and um, you also see a real difference in the balance of power between men and women. Um, suddenly. Men moved the rocks, they fell the trees, they plowed the land. They were the ones that brought the produce off to local markets, and those are the ones they came home with the equivalent of money. And women could no longer hunt and you know gather their fruits and vegetables and come home with much of the evening meal. They were now relegated to the secondary jobs of picking, weeding, pruning, preparing the evening meal, right. and having lots of babies uh, to work the land. 
And so right. you see really across uh, hunting and gathering societies, everything from Europe uh, through Asia, a the rise of the double standard, uh, the belief that women were less sexual than men, less economically powerful, not as smart, um, their place was in the home, etc. So along with settling down on the farm, and it, 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 it had such a dramatic change uh, into all of these modern beliefs. So I'm, you know, I'm becoming aware as we're, we're speaking very um, kind of transactionally and biologically about, about the institution of marriage and... Um, and you know what? So, so this uh, this idea that we spoke about a minute ago of um, the the damage that gets done to children when right. marriages fail the way they fail these days um, is significant. And those are the kinds of things that uh, I, you know religious people talk about in in sacred terms. I mean, it it is you know thinking about marriage as an institution that is there to be nurturing and and in particular to be nurturing to the children and. Um, I mean, there's all this, there, like the religious view of marriage as a sacrament right. is, it, it, all, it doesn't really figure in the way you study marriage and look at marriage. And I just, I wonder if you ever have conversations with, um, with religious people. It would be very interesting. But, it, it, but have you not, uh, do people... Do they people haven't yet, a, but maybe you'll don't. inspire them. Yeah, I mean, because I, yeah. So, I mean, how would you... Do you see that as just a as as a way of thinking about marriage um, that is just completely removed from what you see and work with? Or no, what would the I see it as a beautiful. What would an interesting discussion be for you? Well, just backing up, uh, hold that thought because yeah. that's uh, yeah. that's okay. something I really have to think about. What an interesting discussion would be. Yeah, but I think you've started it right now, and most religions. Um, um, I don't see it as religion supporting marriage. I see the profoundly basic human drive to love and form marriages as 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 so important that we've created institutions like religion to support it. Mm-hmm. So even more important than religion are these profoundly basic human drives to love. Mm. And religions then build on that drive to support that drive. Mm-hmm. So and uh, in a way maybe to settle it. I mean maybe they're and the to give it some rules. in that gap that we talked about between the insanity of the falling and yeah. then this the the responsibility of the settling. And and to give people support. Yeah. I mean, you know, the concept of God is is really a beautiful concept. It it helps a great many people. Um in 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 times of real stress and and despair, uh, it, it's one of mankind's great institutions. I would say for both good and evil. I mean, you yeah. you really see people killing each other over the concept too. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's one of mankind's institutions that is very supportive of love. Mm-hmm. So what 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 kind of conversation would I like to have with a theologian? Can you tell me? <laughs> well, I think maybe someone would say that they that they are disturbed by how this <clears throat> you know, this capacity that we have, I mean not just restricted to romantic love, but including that is just one of the most ennobling 
uh, and defining characteristics of what it means to be human at its best. And I think, and they, I would agree, of course, right. And when I think they might be disturbed that you're that the the scientific focus that you bring to it, uh, the the you know that it might feel reductionistic. What happens in terms of neurotransmitters and hormones and biology? And I, I mean, I wonder how you would Great. engage that discomfort. You have, uh, you've just enabled me to say what if I, when I die, what I'm going to say next is for me the one thing I would like humanity to remember, and that is, the more we know about the brain, the body, human evolution, about biology, the more we are come will come to understand the power of culture to change that biology. Mm. Biology and culture and religion, they all go hand in hand. They're all parts of parts of a huge, big system called humanity. Mm. And I don't feel that they threaten each other. I feel that they enhance one another. Mm. And that a truly religious person, if they have any imagination, can benefit from understanding that the love of God is in all of us, in some form, that uh, is biologically based, it's not going away, uh, uh, and that it's part of humanity. So I don't see a big uh, dichotomy mm-hmm. that other people might see. I see a tremendous union between the intellectual, the spiritual, and the biological. Mm-hmm. I think they work together as a team. It's mm. great. Um, sometimes I worry that, uh, when you, you know, your vision of, um, of how we are completely overcoming 10,000 years and we're going back to a place where we choose, where we're not assigned partners, either, you know, overtly by being in an arranged marriage or just being in, you know, just with the expectations that come with who we will marry. Over the years, I've had friends and acquaintances who are, who come from societies, India mostly, where... They, they themselves or family members have been in arranged marriages. Right. And you, you know, you, I, I came to this real respect for, for what I heard. You right. know, I heard so much um, that uh, you are, that your mate is selected <clears throat> for you, but that the love follows the marriage. Right. And often that it was very deep love right. and, a, and a successful marriage. Right. And then I've contrasted that with this, you know, this crazy freedom we have to just, you know, and as you said, it's timing. I mean, it may not be that the, the, the only thing that may line up in the person someone marries, marries is the state they were in when they, that person came across their path right. <clears throat> and how their, bi- sorry, <clears throat> and how their biological clock was ticking at that right. moment. And uh, so I've wondered, have you studied yes. arranged marriages? I, I have. And um, I read a book many years ago. I still have the book. I think it was even written in, I don't know, 50s or 60s. And it was called Marriage East and West. And it finally, truly explained it to me. Because Americans as a group cannot understand Mm-mm. arranged marriages. We, we, we have a visceral response. It's like a form of torture. Yeah, to arranged yeah. marriages. Yeah. And this really explained it in the most beautiful way. And it was a book, and it largely talked about India. And basically in India... They really do believe that their parents are going to pick the, the right person. Mm-hmm. And so they're looking forward to the marriage with the right person that their parents are going to choose. 
And of course, these days they have, they can meet the person themselves and several times and say yes or no. So there's no place in the world anymore where the children are forced into a marriage. Yeah. But um, to my knowledge. But anyway, the bottom line is in these arranged marriages, these children are really looking forward, believing that their parents are going to find them the right person. And then the marriage in India is very fancy. It goes on for many days. You're all dressed up. And when you get all dressed up and it's all that so music all and that all that ritual, dancing. That thing, that and, ritual thing that and need. all that's going to drive up the dopamine okay. in the brain. Okay. And the dopamine is going to uh, light up that brain circuitry for romantic love. And it's my understanding that in India they even have a word that during the a marriage ceremony, the series of marriage ceremonies, romantic love will enter. Huh. And, of course, they've created all these rituals so that romantic love will enter. Any kind of novelty drives up the dopamine system in the brain mm-hmm. and, can, and, and, and can trigger the brain circuitry for romantic love. So they not only believe that mother and dad will pick the right person, and in fact, one of the lines in the book was something like, we can't believe how you Americans have to get all dolled up and sit around in a bar and wait for people to call. And Well, we just sit around and play with our girlfriends and dad finds us the perfect boy. <laughs> and you begin to see the logic yeah. of this. And um, one of the problems in India, though, is that it's very hard to divorce. Yeah. And so, so if it doesn't, if love, the love doesn't follow, if the it doesn't work yeah. out, there's something called these dowry deaths, mm-hmm. in which they the women are constantly cooking, mm-hmm. and and she gets burned alive. Yeah. This is not this is not good. I mean, um, <clears throat> another thing from your science that I was I was applying to that is you talked about how um, casual sex. Doesn't really remain casual. It's not casual um, unless you're so and, drunk and, and you can't and remember. And why? It. And why? I mean, how you can explain it? It's because of what what is set off in your right. brain and your body conspires to make you start feeling attached to this person, or in love, or, or both. in love. Yeah, right. Um, and then it. Then I thought also in terms of arranged marriage when they say, you know, the. So this is interesting. So it starts with the ritual that starts amping up these. Brain circuitry. Im- imitating what would happen if you met the one and knew it across the room, right? right? And then the marriage is consummated, I would think. Sure. Which also begins to absolutely trigger that those attachment. systems. That's, that's that's exactly right. And you know, I mean, any when you when you have an orgasm, you get a real flood of oxytocin and vasopressin, and these are the basic bodily and brain systems for attachment. Right. It's like so, what mothers get went to and they love their babies. Yeah. It's yeah. I mean, don't primal. have sex with somebody you don't want to feel something for. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, you, people can do what they want to do. I'm not in the should business. But the bottom line is, if you don't want to get attached to somebody, it's easier to not sleep with them. because you might end up being attached to somebody who really does not fit into your life and i think as again in this new world i mean i grew up in a very uh conservative strict um southern baptist you know small town where you were saving yourself for marriage right like and this was just an absolute right um now and, and, you know, now I kind of look back on that and see it as uh, helpful in a way. Like mm-hmm. it provided boundaries that were good so that you right. didn't. I mean, I actually see these rules at a point. They didn't work very well, and they certainly they don't work any now at all in most places. But 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 ha- the, the provision of those boundaries so that you don't, when you're too young, to be swept away by 
right that attachment human animal needs you boundaries know, it's so and that is one of the things it's so interesting because i apparently you know um a lot of these um um are people who live in really bad neighborhoods and the young men form gangs yeah and apparently one of the reasons that they form gangs is these gangs have very rigid rules yeah and they all grew up in families with no rules Mother wasn't around, dad wasn't around, people were taking drugs uh, with no rules. And so they, they go into the gangs to find a home where there are rules. Yeah. And here we are in a, in, a, in, a, in a society now where we don't have any rules. Right. Nobody knows what to do. Right. I mean, I, I see a man walking with me towards the door and I also see him sort of step back. He doesn't know whether to open the door for me, thinking I might be insulted if he opens the door. Or rush to open the door yeah. because right. <laughs> uh, because I'm more traditional. Yeah, they d- nobody knows what to do. I know, and it's so sad. I want them to rush to open the door. Yeah, I want them to <laughs> rush to open the door. I want a boy to be yes, a boy. Right. There's something basic about protection yeah. and yeah. and 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 sensitivity. That, yeah. No, I, I I I'm with you there. And manners, just I mean, yeah. again, it's rituals, right? Yeah. It's rituals. You know, one of the things is the divorce rate in America is um, highest in the Bible Belt. Yeah. And it's highest in the Bible Belt, probably not because of religion, but because they marry so young. And they marry so young because they're saving themselves for marriage. Yeah. And um, so it, it, it's, it, it's, not that, it's not their religious beliefs. It's that the, they end up marrying so young mm-hmm. that they marry somebody that they really, they mature and they turn into a, sort of a fuller human being and yeah. realize that this isn't isn't right for them. Right. And and even in very religious uh, cultures like that, where people are kind of crafting their path towards marriage with these religious rules. Yeah. Um I still think all the messages that are coming at them about who you marry and about the romance of that are coming from movies with happy endings yeah. and, you know, all the love songs that yeah. we just, you know, that just were awash in right. at that age. I and I wanted to ask yeah. you about that because I I guess one of my kind of deeper concerns here in this within this subject is that somehow um I mean I I love your I love your idea that you know this knowledge is power and somehow our brains take us through these several very powerful stages to getting to the point of being with other people. But somehow we need to figure out how to be intelligent and caring in this matter of long-term love. And it seems like we have almost, it seems like our brains don't do that for us. It's such a good point because, you know, Americans love romantic love. Yeah. We just love romantic love. Mm -hmm. But we don't pay much attention to attachment. No. And it's very interesting. I was, I was on um, uh, some radio with a guy from China. And um, it was a great learning moment for me because I was talking about romantic love and how you, how, you know, it's, you, you can remain in love long term as well as loving the person and you can sustain this ro- long term romantic love in a deep attachment. And he said, why would you want to do that? <laughs> right. Because they admire attachment. 
you know, or at least he did, and he was representing right. the Chinese right. perspective that, okay, romantic love comes and romantic love goes. What's really powerfully important is that feeling of deep attachment to yeah. a human being. Yeah. And at that moment, I said, oh, right, Helen, you've just been a member of your own culture and you've not realized that other cultures... Uh, historically, the itself is a wonderful. <clears throat> that's what that's what he was telling me. Yeah, and and we celebrate romantic love, and we do not really celebrate attachment. And in fact, you know, I, I remember a line from a poem that a friend of mine wrote, and which was, "We we are lied to by our love songs." Yes, because yes, um, they always end up with a happy ending. Yeah, and uh, you know, it's interesting. I I. Um, in a documentary about my work that was done by a guy called Christian Fry, F-R-E-I, is a Swiss guy, and it's, the, it's called Sleepless in New York, and it's a documentary about rejection in love. And I'm the basic, uh, it's a documentary, I'm the basic narrator, and then he has three people who've just gotten dumped. And it's a very powerful film, and it's it's airing all over Europe now, mm. And he's a very well-known documentary uh, documentarian. He he won um, best director for his last film. And he was nominated for an Oscar for a film before this. Is very well known, and it's a very powerful film. And not one single American distributor has picked it up. What is that about? We're so I obsessed don't, with. I I, I I I don't know. Yeah. I have no idea. Yeah. It's because it's about rejection in love. And, of course, you see these people come back to life. Mm-hmm. So it has a powerful mm-hmm. way of ending. But what is it about Americans that, you know, we've been lied to our, by our love songs. We want to believe it. We do see it in the movies, uh, a rejection. Mm-hmm. But um, we have a rose-colored glasses on. Yeah. And I don't, that, or there's so much pain in the movie that people can't go there. I don't know what it is. I don't have a clue. But I find it fascinating statement about America, not yeah. about the movie. And I just also feel like with all this change that we've talked about, with new up-and-coming generations, um, it being a complete matter of choice for them, right? Um, and then the fact that we're all living longer. Right. I mean, we have so many decades potentially yeah, to live to with have, somebody. To be married, to have all kinds of relationships, um, or to have a marriage that, you know, as Margaret Mead, you know, said, you know, might evolve to be a few marriages to right. survive. Um, I just feel like somehow we have to grab hold of this and, and kind of become learners. I think the young are. You do? I mean, yeah, in this Singles in America, not everybody, mm-hmm. um, but in this Singles in America study that I do with uh, with Match.com, you know, we ask them, what must you have in a relationship and what's very important? And, you know, as I said last night, uh, they must have somebody they can trust and confide in. They must have uh, somebody who respects them. They must have somebody who makes them laugh, which actually is very important biologically. I just love that. Because laughter it. drives up yeah. the dopamine system. It's very good for you. Laughter yeah. is very good for you. Yeah. They must have somebody who spends enough time, puts, gives them enough time, and they must have somebody that they find uh, physically attractive. We are turning inwards. We are trying to build now the most important relationship. Um, and when I ask the questions like, uh, uh, this is what 
singles refuse do not. They're very um, in favor of, of marriage without children. They're in, very in favor of children without marriage. They're very in favor of living together. What they will not tolerate is commuter marriages, um, people living in separate homes, uh, people living in separate bedrooms. Um, um, they want total transparency in the relationship. They want to be have access to the person's cell phone. Mm. They, um, a great many of them would walk out even on a date who uh, who uh, hides what they're saying on their phone uh, mm. or their texts. I think they're looking for a really special kind of, of relationship. You know, 100 years ago, sure, you had a nice husband and that was great, but you also had very profound relationships with your with all your other people in the local community. Yeah. And because, um, and so the partnership didn't have the same profound intimacy mm -hmm. um, because it wasn't all you've got. Now your partner's really all you got. Mm -hmm. And so we want everything in that partnership. So That's rather deadly. than being um, <laughs> yeah. less serious about mm -hmm. that primary relationship, I think we are profoundly more serious about it. I think, I think people are taking this very seriously. There's never been so many self-help books. There's never been so many therapies, therapists and couples therapists and mm -hmm. all kinds of support systems. So, so this systems. education is maybe just, it's, it's happening now. It's happening in real time. They, they, they don't want to fail. They've seen their parents fail. Yeah. They've seen their friends fail. They're scared of divorce. You know, 67% of, uh, of, of, of singles these days are terrified of the economic and the and the social and personal yeah. uh, fallout from divorce, and we may see a real swing towards, um, uh, you know, really good marriages. Well, you know, I did this um, study of of married people with Match. dot com, mm -hmm. not their match population, of course, mm -hmm. they're not married. And I asked these married people, uh, it was a thousand people in the in the study, a little over a thousand. Would you remarry the person that you are? Married to now, and eighty-one percent said yes. So, uh, and seventy-six percent said that they were still madly in love with this person. And I, I have uh, friends who've who've done other similar studies and found the same data. So, um, you know, you're talking to an optimist. <laughs> That's probably yeah. your problem. <laughs> But also, did I read that you were married once, but briefly? Is that right? I was only married for a few months yeah. when I was 23. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I, I married the wrong person. Yeah. And uh, actually, the night we decided a divorce was one of our best nights together. <laughs> and then, well, you know, I was a young hippie in graduate school. Okay. It, was, okay. it was the 60s. Okay. And, <laughs> right. and we then went out together for another four years. Hmm. Um, but no, he wasn't the right guy for me. Mm -hmm. I have then made two very long, one was a 30 year relationship. He died about five years ago. Mm -hmm. We lived together for about 20 years and then we lived separately, but I still spend every Christmas with him, every, every holiday with him. Uh, 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 he's always been really the love of my life. And then I've also had for, for almost 18 years, a, uh, a uh, relationship with another man it was a very powerful, two powerful relationships. So, mm -hmm. I, I I don't feel I would have married um, either of them. Um, um, uh, uh, the, the first one, um, he said to me one night. He said, uh, "I'd be happy to marry you. You know, just let me know if that <laughs> that works for you." Right. And for some reason, I was young and. Uh, 
and didn't feel that I needed a marriage. I never wanted to have children. I think that's what's really important. Had I wanted to have children, mm-hmm. uh, I've always felt that there were an awful lot of children in the world. I could do something else with my life that could mm-hmm. be more of mm-hmm. use. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was really obsessed with my work. And I didn't want to lay that on a child. And my twin sisters had a child. So, but uh, but um, I felt that I've I feel that I've had two very powerful deeply meaningful and successful relationships. I, 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 yeah, mm-hmm. I didn't marry him, but there was true love. Mm-hmm. So how do you think all these things you know through your science, through your work, mm-hmm. um, you know, how does it, how have you been able to work with that or have you? I mean, yeah. is there a limit to, you know, when we talk about the, the insanity part of, yeah. of the reality of love? Um, yeah. I use the um, the I don't know if it's a metaphor or not of of a piece of chocolate cake. You can know every single ingredient in a piece of chocolate cake, but then when you sit down and eat it, you just feel that rush of joy. And in the same way, I know a lot about love. I know a lot about marriage. I know a lot about adultery and divorce. I know something about the brain. Now certainly know hopefully know something about evolution. But I'm just like you and everybody else. When it hits you. You're off to the races. You know, I, there's been times that I've, I've walked towards the phone saying, don't call him, Helen. <laughs> this isn't a good idea, Helen. Take control, Helen. Mm. As I'm punching the buttons on the phone and calling him. So bottom line is, it, it has helped me, though. There's been times when I sort of met a man who I, who I could have really loved and almost immediately found out that they loved somebody else. Mm-hmm. And I knew immediately, no, no, mm-hmm. don't go there. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think if you don't know how powerful love is, you might try when, in fact, it's not the right idea. Mm-hmm. So knowing what I've known has helped me um, navigate. But the bottom line is I'm, I'm just like everybody else. Mm-hmm. Do you have any theories about um, or any perspective on... It, it seems like the world right now, the world a lot of us inhabit, you know, Western, urban, educated people, is full of amazing single women. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, men, fewer men who are single and even fewer men who are as amazing or as appropriate. Um, it feels like they're, like the world is out of balance Mm-hmm. I think, and, and and again, I'm maybe talking about a certain demographic group, but it 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 doesn't seem like it's just you know forty, fifty, and sixty year olds. It 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 seems like it's harder for twenty five year olds to know where to look for a mate. So, what perspective do you have on that? Well, first of all, um, I wrote a book about the natural talents of women and how they're changing the world, yeah. and. Um, I would have written a book about men and their natural talents and how they're changing the world, but they've already done that. And we already know a lot of men's talents. And I don't. I think women have been the mysterious sex. And so I've been, I've written a whole book on gender differences in the brain and and what we don't understand about women and, and, and the brilliance of women and what they really bring uh, to the world. But I am also a big proponent of men. And I would say there's just as many amazing men out there as there are women in every age group. 
<clears throat> I don't think we understand men at all. Mm-hmm. You know, we've, we've spent uh, 50 years trying to bust a lot of myths about women. About women, right. And we've spent no years at all busting the myths about men. Yeah. But um, I have a lot of data with this Match.com Singles in America study that, that uh, and other data too, but that men are just as romantic as women are. The brain is exactly the same but in terms of But is it true love. that there are fewer single men? I mean, why I does that? Know. Why does it feel like the numbers are just off? I wonder if the women's magazines are perpetuating that. Mm-hmm. I I don't know the answer. Yeah. Um. Uh. I know that more men remarry. Yeah, and remarry more quickly. Uh, and right? remarry more quickly. Yeah. You know, I love. There's an old quote. It comes from a, uh, a poem. It's borrowed from a poem by. Uh, Ted Hughes, and it's you know, and I've doctored it a bit, but it's men and women are like two feet. They need each other to get ahead, and. We are built to work together, play together, love together, live together. And I don't know. I meet an awful lot of single men in New York City. Mm. Um, And they have brains and and they have feelings. And they do love and they want to be loved. Mm -hmm. And women are the picky sex. Mm. Um. Men fall in love faster than women do because they're so visual. Uh, they want more public displays of affection uh, They, when they are in love. Um, they want to... <coughs> they want to introduce... <coughs> sorry. <coughs> they want to introduce a uh, new partner to friends and family sooner. Huh. Uh, they want to move in sooner. Um, men have more intimate conversations with their wives than women do with their husbands because women have their intimate conversations with their girlfriends, mm. not their partners. Mm. And men are two and a half times more likely to kill themselves when a relationship is over. Um, when I ask on, on the Singles in America study with Match, uh, men are the, women are the independent sex. Women are the one that want to go out more often with their girlfriends in the evenings. They want to travel more uh, with girlfriends. Um, they're less willing to, to, to share their money. Uh, they want uh, more personal time. Uh, I think we're just beginning to understand who men are. Hmm. I think we've got this concept that they're sort of bullies who are marching through the room with a bow and arrow. And in fact, in many respects, I think they're they're the more fragile, emotionally fragile sex and um, deeply willing to... uh, It's women who do all the complaining about their marriages, but women are more verbal. Yeah. Uh, women are the custodians of the marriage. Mm. And uh, uh, I, I, I think we're just beginning to understand who men really are. It's really interesting. Yeah. When you take a look at the brain, and we put, I've put a lot of men into a brain scanner, as I put a lot of women, it lights up exactly the same way when they're in love. <laughs> and that deep sense of attachment. Yeah. I mean, look at the men who will stay in a terrible marriage because they feel so responsible. Yeah. And look at all the men dying, for God's sakes, in other countries to, to protect, uh, thinking they were protecting our country. Yeah. I mean, men are, are, yeah. are, are doers, and, but they're not talkers about it. Yeah. And so we're hearing from women. I remember I was recently with a group of, of women from the major women's magazines. We were having a, a business lunch. And there were three women who couldn't find a man. And they were all really good-looking, young, smart, educated Somewhere going somewhere, women, and none of them could find a man. I said, "You know what?" He said, "There's no men around." 
I said, I bet, the, I bet, I bet all three of you um, have at least one man in your life right now who would marry you within a week. But maybe he is the back elevator man for your building. <laughs> or maybe yeah. he it works in the mailroom. You're picky. <laughs> you know? And yeah. the bottom line is, we're picky for a reason. Mm-hmm. We're the ones that are going to carry that baby for nine months. We're the ones that are going to go through the danger of delivering that child. We are the ones who are going to raise that child. Largely, I mean, the real day-to-day work for the first four years anyway, in, in every culture in the world. Now, men are changing diapers these days, no question yeah. about it. But still, they don't do it the way women do. Women have to be picky. Mm. Mm. But I think we're going to come to learn that men are just as romantic mm. as women and that women are just as sexual and that we're going to cast away these beliefs that, that men are just fools. That's really great. I uh, This has just been so... I haven't even looked at my notes. Oh, I guess if, you know maybe just one, one last thing. I, I, I just and I, this is this is me being this using this as kind of a therapy. Oh, <laughs> for wonderful! Myself. I'm not a therapist, um, but I'll uh, do what I can. <laughs> <laughs> well, just maybe two more questions. So, um, so as I like, I'm in my fifties now. Okay, and I'm as in I, my sixties. In your sixties, yeah, and, and I mean, being in your fifties and sixties is just. So interesting, it's and in so a way that I mean, it's great. It is great. Um, uh, it's a little awkward though. On this, you know, it's 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 uncertain. I mean, the trajectory of all of this is different. And um, but one thing that I'm aware of myself is, uh, and, and as I kind of scrutinize, like you know, again, why did my marriage fail, and would I choose better? You know, would I know? Would I know to choose? differently now and um i feel like one of the things that comes with has come with age for me is i I look back at my younger self and my love relationships and and i was so i realized how much of it was about wanting to be loved and how much Mm. of the exhilaration was about being loved Mm -hmm. and i'm i want to be more intentional moving forward um about like the adventure of loving, you know. Mm. <clears throat> I had an adventure <clears throat> recently that was very interesting. Mm-hmm. I fell immediately for a person in my business world. I would never touch that guy. He was very important in my business world. He's a happily married guy, mm-hmm. and there was no way that Helen Fisher was ever going to put a move on him. Never. And I never did. Mm-hmm. And for the first time in my life, I, I would, I, every time I saw him, my heart would pound, I, I'd get a dry mouth, I, I, would, I, would, I would try to be a normal person. And I realized that I was going to have to enjoy this feeling all by myself. Mm-hmm. And I would come home and I'd lie down and say, okay, Helen, just enjoy the feeling of, he doesn't know, you never know. Mm-hmm. And um, and try to just enjoy the sensation of adoring somebody from the back woods, you know, right. from the back right. pew in the church. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a different experience for me to not make any kind of move. Because mm-hmm. young girls do that, mm-hmm. you know. They say, ah. Or you think that it meant nothing if you couldn't make the move. Exactly. Yes. So, um, but I, I do think that what goes around comes around. And if you and I and other people just, you know, 
spend some time loving somebody. And it's interesting how they respond. I mean, you know, uh, a man and I sort of left each other a couple of years ago. And so now I don't have that intense need for him. I can love him in a, in the way he should have been loved all along. Mm. Mm. With a deep attachment, a real understanding for who he is. And, um, and just giving him the time he needs with other people. Mm-hmm. And... Um, not being all upset if I don't hear from him, released from that passion, you can finally love somebody in in some in some new ways that are mm-hmm. that are can be very comforting not only for them but for you. Yeah. And then you can build a new kind of of, of, of partnerships with them. This just I just it just feels like what we're talking about is like this kind of maturation of. Yeah, of our collective. It's too bad I didn't do it sooner. <laughs> yeah, well, that's how it goes. It's maturation, right? I guess just um, oh, finally, I just wanted to note. I did uh, we, uh, actually, my, Lily, my producer, found this blog that you wrote. I, okay. I don't know if you've written it on it recently, but for a while, and you always signed it "Sempra ad Astra," oh. always to the stars yes. after a line of Tennyson. And I just, you know, when I read that, I thought, I, you know, she's a romantic. I am. She's a romantic. And so I wondered, oh, with this life you've lived and this work you've done, you know, how has the meaning of that term and that thing, being a romantic, evolved for you? Can you talk about how it's changed over time? Being a romantic? Yeah. A great question. Semperad Astro. Mm. That is my motto. I didn't know that was from Tennyson. Is it from Tennyson? I think you said it was from huh. Tennyson. Oh no, it's it's my family motto. Oh, I mean, it is. it's my family crest. And my family apparently goes back to Holland in 1603, and and on that family a crest or family tree, mm-hmm. it says Semper ad Astra, mm. and I've loved it from that moment to this. And it it is it is it, it's what I live. It's 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 where I live. Is that is that term. You're going to make me cry, so I'm going to get my act <laughs> <laughs> Um Romance. Ask the question again. How that romantic, and you know, what it, your sense of what it means to be romantic or your experience yeah. of that, you know. I guess I've just sort of lived it. You just lived it. Yeah. I was so impressed yesterday with your interview because I thought to myself, my God, Helen, you're so shallow. <laughs> I've never thought about my inside and my outside <laughs> and the Mobius strip and... I never thought about any of that. I'm sort of bebopping along, living it. I, um, and uh, so that gave me a good deal of pause. Uh, I just am a romantic. It's a pain in the neck. I cry at parades. <laughs> you know, I look in a baby carriage and that's going down this baby going down the street and say, "Oh boy, are you in for?" Some rock and roll. Yeah. Um, I go into museums and I see all the little amulets and the pendants and I think somebody gave that to somebody a hundred thousand years ago. There's a love story there. Um, I love poetry because it captures the passion of people around the world. Um, it gives me a great sense of unity with all of humanity that ever was and ever will be. Hmm. That's great. What fun. Thank you. I don't think you're shallow. You can stop worrying about that. I don't know. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) 
Yeah. That's an amazing interview. Yeah. Amazing. It was interview. such a great conversation. It was just, well, because, I mean, it was not standard. No. And yet I was able to say all these things. It yeah. was just wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Thank it was you. Great. It was great for me, too. Great. Mm. Oh, yeah. good. Yeah. I might be a little shallow, though. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I didn't get a lot of what they were talking about yesterday. Don't put this on the tape. <laughs> I guess a doer. And I, you know, it's the first time I've ever said that I was an atheist. I don't know if that'll go over. Oh, I don't. Don't worry about it. I interview a lot of atheists. I mean, it's an interesting question to ask about the spiritual background of people's childhood. Yeah. Everybody has one, even an atheist. Yeah. And it's often true that. Um, I just feel like it's a pl- what I what I hear in the stories people tell is it's a place where a lot of p- questions got planted that people actually followed. You know, it wasn't necessarily. I guess my questions weren't planted there. Yeah, because my mother, instead of taking me to church, would would get down on her hands and knees and look at the the worms and say, "Oh, you see the worms exactly going this way. right, right." And but somehow you, know, you associate in- that. You somehow it is associated with even even in the the absence of it. Or the turning away from it. There's some. There are questions that arise, and there's some stuff people work with, Absolutely. and they continue to work with. You don't have to be religious to be empathetic, yeah, or or to be a good person, yeah, or to have profoundly basic and important values. Yeah, I mean, I've asked like people, uh, you know, what was the what was the spiritual background of your childhood, and somebody said uh, loneliness. Oh my goodness! You know, but that, I mean, but you That's know, I mean, she really and seeing that as a spiritual sta- a state, a state of being, uh-huh. and, and you know, somebody else would just say love, um, and then you That's get really so interesting. you know, and so I mean, like Robert Coles, who was the great child psychologist yeah. who wrote the Spiritual Life of Children, and before that, he wrote about the political lives of children, and them, and in he his story was about. Um, so I think, I think his father was Jewish, and his mother was Christian, or something. And his father would, a little bit like your story, but, you know, his father would drive them to church every Sunday morning, but he never came in. So he drove them all to church. They went to church. He stayed in the car and read the New York Times. All <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. But, 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 Robert, but, it, but Robert Coles, like, got so curious about, like, you know, why, why did dad's, you know, why did his father stay in the car? And, like, then all this interesting thinking came about in that space of, Wondering and isn't that fascinating? Yeah, it's very fascinating. It's a really fertile thing to ask yeah. people about. I wonder what would happen if I talk with a theologian. I wonder. I'm not a debater, and, and I, I'm one of these people who just wants to keep the oh. peace. So I, I would search for harmony. I and thought what we had in karma. no. I thought your response was really great. But we have all kinds of people who listen to our show, including you know really devout religious people, and then you know lots of atheists and agnostics, so everything in between. But we, but we do have very uh, faithful people, and I, I was kind of, as we were talking, I was kind of listening for them and thinking. Um, what will they do with this? Yeah, and when, and I was kind of feeling their discomfort, So I've, I, but I think what you said was just perfect. It was just beautiful. See, I don't remember what I, I said, but well, it, you, it worked okay. Well, you can listen when it's... <laughs> yeah, fantastic. I yeah, will definitely yeah. listen. Oh, thank you. 